0: Assurance of your relationship with Jesus comes because you are walking with Jesus. Hi, my name is Michael Tuck and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Two studies conducted by Barna. Uh, maybe if I turn this one off and just use it. You, you got me down a little bit, Mark? All right. Uh, two studies conducted by both Barna, uh, the Barna Group and the USA Today uh, newspaper found that nearly 75 percent, 75 percent of young people Uh, who at one time say, I'm following Jesus. After after school, after high school, they leave their faith and they leave their churches behind. And one of the key reasons that they identify is intellectual skepticism. Uh, Their doubts lead them to uh, unbelief. But it's not just the young teenage followers of Jesus who are at times rejecting their faith, in the New Testament, for instance, we have many, many warnings about falling away from Jesus. The entire book of Hebrews, if you do not know this, is written to Hebrew Christians who are contemplating no longer following Jesus. They have accepted, received, they have said Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, but now they're changing their mind, and they are contemplating going back to the Sinai covenant, to following Yahweh and rejecting Jesus. And so the book of Hebrews was written by someone to say to these Christians, do not turn, these Jewish Christians, do not turn away from Jesus. He is the one that we think he is. Second Peter seems to almost from beginning to end be a, a call to believers to not fall away for any variety of reasons and ever since ever since the day of jesus people have been uh, been following jesus only to turn around and abandon him and no longer following him sometimes out of uh like one of the girls said sometimes out of selfish desires sometimes out of some other reason maybe the following became uh too difficult and it seems like we are finding that more and more christians renowned christians in our culture are falling away. I know we've talked about Joshua Harris, but I'd like to talk about him for just a, a, another moment. Joshua was uh, 47 years old. He was a celebrity pastor in the evangelical world. He pastored a mega church in, in Maryland. Uh, he had fame when he was 21 years old because he wrote a book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, and it influenced many people at that time. And uh, And Harris uh, left that mega church to go back to seminary. And it was soon after leaving the church that he recanted his book and apologized for it and said, I'm sorry for all the hurt that my emphasis on moral purity and my emphasis on, on parent involvement in courtship, he said, I, I repent of that. And I'm sorry if I've hurt you by my book. And then a few years later, uh, Joshua Harris took to his social media, and this is what he wrote, and I quote him, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have in defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. And following that, he went on to announce that uh, he and his wife are divorcing. And since then, he's embraced a lot of worldview positions that that we as Bible-believing Christians would not hold. But he's not alone. Hillsong writer Marty Sampson wrote this about the same time. He says, time for some real talk. I am genuinely losing my faith. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people, but it's not for me. I am not in anymore. Dave Gass, the former pastor of Grace Family Fellowship and pastor of Covenant Church and Cedar Community Church, took to social media to announce the following. After, and I quote him, after 40 years of being a devout follower of Jesus, 20 of those being an evangelical pastor, I am walking away from the faith. Even though this has been a massive bomb drop in my life, it has been decades in the making. Now, most of us in our Baptist tradition, we were taught that once you were saved, you were saved. God would would keep you, and you would never fall away from Jesus. We were taught that the gift of salvation and forgiveness also included a guarantee that no one could steal you out of the hand of God. A quote, uh, or based on the verses from John chapter ten, verse ten, you were eternally secure. Now, unfortunately, now follow follow me here because this is important. I want you to I want you to get this. Whether you end up Not necessarily agreeing with me at the end. I want you to understand what I'm saying. Unfortunately, over time, this idea of being eternally secure came to also mean something like this. If you prayed a prayer at some time in your past life, a prayer of salvation, you came forward at church or you were baptized, You were going to heaven no matter what the future brought. No matter what happened in the future, you were going to heaven. If at one point you claimed to trust Jesus, you were secure. And you could never fall away from Jesus. Now, originally, I was going to treat the last section of Mark chapter 9, if you're our guest, we're in Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, we're studying it, and you would be turning there in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. I was going to treat the last verses of Mark 9 as a misconception, but I was always a bit unsettled about that. I always felt like, I'm not sure this is a, is a misconception on the disciples' part, or rather this is a, a warning, a serious teaching from Jesus rather than correcting a misconception that they had. Maybe this is just a serious teaching on his part. And so you remember last week I divided that message in half and we dealt with what I really thought were misconceptions. And now today I'm going to deal with this last part. Uh, Instead, I believe that Jesus is treating uh, or, or teaching his disciples about the danger of falling away. And listen carefully to what I'm going to say right now. I'm going to say that maybe Jesus is confronting a misconception that uh, that we have. I'm going to come out clearly today, and I'm going to suggest something this morning, uh, that when you and I were taught that we couldn't fall away, I've come to the conclusion that that's a misunderstanding of what the Scriptures teach. I think the Bible teaches that you can indeed begin to follow Jesus, and you can indeed fall away. And not only can you fall away, but you can be responsible for unfortunately causing others to fall away as well. So like I said... Listen to me, listen to understand what I'm saying, and let me see if I can if I can defend what I'm saying to you. So let's begin with our text. It's Mark chapter 9 verse 42. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, let me deal with something that's not even in my notes, but I noticed this morning when I was reading a different uh, a different translation. Many of your translations will say, "If, if whoever causes a little one of these uh, to sin," does your translation say "sin"? All right, it would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck. Well, the actual word there is "skandalon," which means get scand- from which we get the word "scandal." It means to stumble someone. So really, putting the word sin in there, and maybe even putting the word fall away in there, are both interpretive. They're, they're the translators trying to tell us what Jesus meant. Literally what he said is, if, any, if anyone, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him uh, if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck. Now, I think Jesus is talking about stumble as in stumble so as to fall away from Jesus, not stumble as in stumble and commit a sin. That being said, let me, let me continue. It would be better for you, Jesus says, to die a horrific death than it would be for you to be the cause of a little one to stumble. to fall away. The idea seems to be if you had a choice between a horrific death of drowning, and honestly I think drowning has got to be one of the most horrific ways to die in my opinion, but if you had the choice between drowning or being the cause of some little one to fall away, Jesus says you should choose that, that horrific death, that's what you should choose, Now, a little one, he doesn't tell us what a little one is. In fact, this morning when we were praying at the 8 o'clock hour, and we read the, we we always, not always, most of the time read the text that we're going to be preaching through, and we pray through it. Someone asked... You know, what is the little one there that he's talking about? And obviously, we we don't know for sure. We have to interpret that. You remember the context from last week is that Jesus takes a little child in his arms. Remember that? So the little one, it could be Jesus is referring to the child that he still has in his arms. And he could be saying, if you cause a little child like this to stumble, man, it would be better that you drown before you did that, right? Right? Um, or I think it could be that he's talking about someone young in the faith. In fact, the context just previous to this is where John says, hey, we tried to stop that guy. We stopped that guy from ministering in your name. And Jesus said, don't stop him. Jesus may have been referring to the disciples seeking to exclude that man from ministering in Jesus' name. Maybe Jesus is saying, be careful not to cause others who are following Jesus to stumble. Or to fall away because you exclude them because you because you exclude them because you're selfish or insecure or prideful. Make sure you don't cause. One of these other brothers out here, make sure that you're not causing him to stumble by for, for whatever reason you might be doing that. But the point that I want you to notice, and this is the point that I want to make, Jesus is warning them, you can actually be the instrument of causing someone else to stumble. I'm going to use that word. I want you to know in my mind, I think it means stumble to fall away from Jesus. Okay. But the word is actually to stumble. And I think that's fair since many of your translations say sin. Uh, But make sure you're not an instrument of causing someone to stumble. Again, it would be better for you to die before than doing that. So I think there's a, a warning here. If you're struggling in your faith, now listen carefully. If you're ever struggling in your faith, be careful not to try to bring other people down with you. Now, I'll tell you something, I have actually experienced that, where someone else is struggling in their faith, and, and, and no one likes to struggle alone. It's a scary place to be when you're struggling in your faith, and you feel all alone, and and so you share your struggles. Not for help. You share your struggles because you want someone else to be in that same struggling boat with you. And so you influence others. And then watch what happens. Somehow along the way, you recover your faith. But the person that you stumbled on purpose because you didn't want to be alone, that person never recovers. Be careful that you don't stumble someone else. But Jesus doesn't stop there. And he challenges us. He goes on. He says, not only be careful not to stumble others. He says, you should be careful that you don't stumble too. And here, here's why you should press on in your doubts rather than choose unbelief. Now, I'm referencing, I mean, some of you may not have been here a couple of weeks ago, but we talked about doubts and what to do when you're having weak faith. And we talked about how you know we have a choice when we're doubting. We can choose unbelief by an act of our will or we can press on in our doubting. And this is why I think you and I should press on in our doubting and, and not fall away because the choice is between life with Jesus in his kingdom or being thrown into the valley of Hinnom. Let's read the text. It's verse 43. I'm going to read through verse 49. And if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it. My text says fall away. Cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, everyone will be salted with fire. Here's what Jesus says. If your hands cause you to stumble, if your feet cause you to stumble so that you don't enter the kingdom, cut them off. It's better to go into the kingdom without feet. If your eye causes you to fall away, gouge your eyes out. It's better to gouge your eyes out and enter the kingdom maimed than to be thrown into hell. It would be better for you to enter life maimed than to be cast into hell. Now, if you notice that the Bible says be thrown into hell, you may have noticed that. I want to ask the question here, and this is where we're going. I'm going to do some teaching, and this might get in the weeds, but just do your best to follow along with me. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, what exactly did Jesus say that day? And what exactly did people understand him to be saying that day? And, And I want to suggest to you that I think there's two possibilities here. And I'm not going to come down on either one of them. I, I do. I would affirm one of them, but I, I believe there are two possible things that Jesus could mean by what he said that day. So let's dive into them, and I want you to understand them both. But we've got to begin by defining the word hell. That's in your translations. And that's in every translation, as best I can tell. Uh, the, the word hell there is the English, it's an old English word. It has even older German roots, right? And the word hell meant a concealed place or the concealed place of the dead, or it also meant the underworld, right? Actually, a better translation. For uh, for hell would be Hades because that's kind of the thought or the idea of that is some of the idea behind Hades or Tartarus would have been the better Greek word for that, um, but the word hell in your Bible translates the Hebrew word Gehenna. All right, so when Jesus spoke to the disciples that day, he did not say the underworld. He did not say. He did not say the place of the concealed dead. He didn't. He used the word gehenna. And by the way, the word gehenna in Hebrew is transliterated into English. You know what transliterated means? It means they picked up the word and they just dropped it in the Greek language. And the Greek word is gehenna. So you've got Gehenna and you've got Gehenna. They're very, very similar, right? We've pretty much picked up the Greek word Gehenna and dropped it into our English. And so when we talk about Gehenna, we usually say Gehenna because we're just using the Greek transliteration of that word. But the word Gehenna, what it means is this, the valley of Henum. When you read the word Gehenna, when, when Jesus said uh, hell there. What he actually said was the Valley of Hennem. It's also called in the Bible, the Valley of the Sons of Hennem and other places. And it was most likely called the Valley of Henum because it was named for its original owner, whose last name was Hennem, right? So it was his valley. The valley, the location of the Valley of Henam, we know and don't know where it is. We know it's outside the potsherd gate outside of Jerusalem, okay? We know that because that's what Jeremiah tells us. We're evidently not sure what the potsherd gate was, all right? And there's three valleys outside of Jerusalem, and all three valleys have been associated with the Valley uh, of Henam, And so we don't really know which of those three valleys was the Valley of of Hennem. So when Jesus said to his original listeners, what he said to them was literally this. This is what they heard. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to the valley of Hinnom, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into the valley of Hinnom." So that's what he said. That's what they heard. Now the question we have to ask ourselves is, when they heard that, what did they think Jesus meant by that? So let's back up a little bit into the Old Testament and talk about the Valley of Hennem. The Valley of Hennem had an evil reputation in the Old Testament. It was associated with idolatrous worship. But the worst part about the Valley of Hennem was that it became the site of Tophet. And Tophet was in the valley. I don't know that we know exactly where Tophet was, but Tophet was the place where parents would sacrifice their little children to Baal, or to Baal, however you want to say his name, or Molech, by tossing them into burning fire. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine. If you saw social media this weekend, I posted my newest grandson. Um, His name is... uh, Edmund Shepard, and uh, I posted a picture of him. I'm telling you, I'm to fight back tears. I just can't imagine a daddy taking his newborn child and throwing him into fire. I, I wonder what has... I thought this question this morning as I was kind of going over my talk, what changed? What changed? But then, but then you might say, "Well, wait a minute, Jimmy, we abort all our children. We abort so many children all the time, and that's kind of like the same thing. And it is, I get it. But I tell you what, there's, there's, a, there's a difference when you can't see that child in these moms' minds. Evidently. There's a, but When that child comes out and you hold that child in your hands, how, how can dads and moms take their children and, and throw them into fire alive? I, I, you know what I thought, what's made the difference? And then I thought it was this, it was Jesus who made the difference. It's Jesus who changed our culture. It's Jesus who has changed our thinking about the value of life. I mean, it's been his ethic and his life that changed all of that. That's a sidebar. That's a sidebar. But but the valley of, of Henan just had to end up having a horrible reputation. David mentioned that this morning that Ahaz sacrificed one of his or more of his children there. Manasseh did. Some of the kings of Israel burned their children alive uh, at Topheth. To stop the child killing, King Josiah at one point defiled the high places of Tophed to try to make the place unfit for this idolatrous worship because so many kids were being burned by their parents. He's trying to stop it. Now, Jeremiah the prophet, the last, really, last prophet prior to the exile, in Jeremiah chapter 7, and then again in, that, in chapter 19, he makes a prediction about the valley of Hinnom, And, uh, and his prediction is that the valley of the sons of Hinnom would one day not be known as the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, but rather it would be known as the Valley of Slaughter. That it would have its name changed, that it would be called the Valley of Slaughter. And so here's exactly what Jeremiah says. This is chapter 7, verse 30. Just listen. It says, For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord, and they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Henom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Man, I tell you, that verse, You should you should underline that verse. God says, man, this evil, I didn't command it. I didn't have anything to do with it. It didn't even enter my mind, such an evil thing that they were doing. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth, because there will be no room elsewhere. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air, for the beast of the field, and none will frighten them away. So God said of the valley of Hinnom that it was going to be the place where he would destroy these people who are against him and who are doing this abomination. He would, And their, their bodies would fill the ba- valley so much so that it would be called the valley of slaughter. Now Isaiah refers to the valley as well. Though he doesn't call it by name, Jesus associates it with the valley of Hinnom. And this is, and in this passage in Isaiah, we read that it's the place where God will cast the dead bodies of his enemies. And there, their worm shall not die, and the fire is not quenched. This is from Isaiah chapter 66. Jesus is actually quoting from Isaiah 66 in Mark 9. Let me read it for you. This is the last part of the book of Isaiah. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So when Jesus was walking the earth, the valley of Henom had come to represent God's final judgment against his enemies. And it represented the valley or the place where God would cast the dead bodies of his enemies. And Jeremiah says the birds of the air and the beasts of the fields, they would eat those bodies until they were gone and no one would shoo them away. I know this is graphic. But This is what the text says. Isaiah adds that the maggots would eat the bodies and not die. And obviously meaning that the the maggots, it wasn't that they would never die. It's that they would not die until the dead bodies were eaten. And the fires would burn and not be quenched until the bodies were burned up. And so just so we're all on the same page, when a fire, and some of you fire people, you tell me if if I'm not right here. If a fire is not quenched, it doesn't mean that it won't go out. A fire that is not quenched is a fire that it does not go out until it has burned everything there is to burn up. And so Isaiah says where the fire is not quenched, he's, he's saying the fire's not going up until all the bodies of God's enemies are destroyed. So between Jeremiah and Isaiah, the prophets predicted that the animals and the maggots would eat the bodies of God's enemies and fires would burn them up. And Isaiah adds this, I don't know if you caught it or not, but I want you to note it. Isaiah adds that at the new heavens and the earth, new earth, the rest of mankind, that would be all of us who belong to God, will look on the dead bodies of all who rebelled against God. And, and, we, they, would, or they, we, would loathe them. So here's the first suggestion to what Jesus meant that day when he said to his original listeners, they'll be cast in the valley of Hinnom. It could be that in their minds, this is what they heard. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with life, though maimed than it is for you to be killed by God at the final judgment and your body thrown into the valley of Hinnom where the maggots won't die and the fire won't be quenched until you are all consumed. Or another way of saying it, it, it could have been that what they heard was, it is better for you to enter my eternal kingdom maimed than to be destroyed or to be killed or to die at the hand of God in final judgment. That's the first possible understanding, but there is a second one, and this is the one that we've all been taught, and and maybe the one that's correct, all right? But here's the second one. Follow with me, follow with me here. By the end of the first century, by the end of the first century, Jewish writers began, it was towards the end of the first century, we have the first Jewish writings that really began to associate Gehenna with eternal conscious torment forever and so we have jewish writings at the end of the first century it wasn't till the end of the second century that we have christian writings that began to make it clear that gehenna represented the valley of hinom represented not a place where god would cast the dead bodies of his enemies but rather would be a place where god would resurrect those who rejected him and eternally torment them. Um, the earliest Christian leader to clearly say that Gehenna represented this eternal conscious torment was Tatian in 160 AD. Tatian was an Assyrian believer who moved to Rome as a pagan and uh, there he was introduced to the Jewish writings and as he read the Jewish writings he became convinced that all pagan ideals were false. He became Jewish and then he became a Christian, because he recognized Jesus as the Messiah. Tation would be the first writing that we have about one uh, about one hundred sixty, where he says clearly: "We who are now easily susceptible to death will afterward receive immortality with either enjoyment or with pain." The next. Christian writer would have been Athenagoras of Athens in 175 AD. Athenagoras was a philosopher and a citizen of Athens who became a Christian. And he wrote a couple of really important uh, writings. And one of them was the uh, Apology or Apologia. And this is what he writes in the, in the Apology. He says, "Apology, as in defense of the Christian faith. We are persuaded that when we are removed from the present life, we will live another life better than the present one. Or if they fail. If they fall with the rest, they will endure a worse life, one in fire. For God has not made us as sheep or beast of burden, who are mere byproducts, for animals perish and are annihilated. On these grounds, it is not likely that we would wish to do evil. So that would be the second specific, clear writing that we have where Gehenna is associated with eternal conscious torment. But here's what you need to note from that point on, just about all the church fathers would begin to associate the Valley of Hinnom with eternal conscious life and torment, and so uh, as, as the years went on, it uh, as the years went on, that became the majority view. It became the view of the church, and uh, and so I want to tell you how we go back. So what happens is when since this became the majority view of the church from this point on. When people look back and they said, well, if that was the point of view by the end of the first century for the Jews and by the end of the second century for the Christians, then it must be that Jesus held that view as well. And so that view of Gehenna representing eternal conscious torment of immortally raised people was now applied to what Jesus said in uh, in Mark chapter 9 and other places where he mentioned the valley of Hinnom. And so that would be why uh, translators chose the word hell to translate the Valley of Hinnom, because the Valley of Hinnom came to represent the place where the dead would be sent, the underworld where the dead would be sent to be uh, tormented by God. So if this view is correct, then Jesus, what Jesus meant, what his, what his listeners would have heard him say was, it's better to enter life maimed than, than, to, uh, than to die and be cast into the eternal fires of, uh, of eternal conscious torment. Everybody follow that? I know it's kind of in the weeds, but did you follow that? So those are the two possibilities, I think, of what Jesus may have meant when he called it the Valley of Hinnom. But, now, now follow me from here on out, because here's where I get applicational for us. In either case, here's what Jesus is saying. Do not fall away. Life is your best choice. Life is your best choice. Whether it's death or whether it's torment, life is what you want. When I was young, and, uh, and I think Michael alluded to this this morning or somebody did, but when I was young, I thought living my life for Jesus to the end would be easy. I know I've told you guys this a lot, so forgive me for repeating myself. Like Peter, I thought, I will never fall away. I I, I won't. I can't. I don't think that anymore. I don't think that anymore. I've grown older, and I'm not nearly as young as I once was. And let me tell you something. I've seen person after person after person fall away. I've seen my kinfolk, who I love more than I could ever Tell you guys, my flesh and blood fall away. I've seen people ever so passionate for Jesus fall away. And I've seen pastors and godly men with the heart for God fall away and no longer walk with God. Today I do not take my faith for granted. I press on towards the mark. My prayer is that God will help me be faithful to the end. And I don't mean be faithful and not sinning. I, I, I know I'm gonna stumble. You know, I hope I'm going to stumble less and less. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being faithful to the end, Lord, never abandoning you. And my prayer is often, God, help me be faithful to the end. Remember the old hymn we used to sing when we sang hymns all the time? Remember this? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I remember every time I sang that song, you know, in my early days, I was like, yeah, what's that about? I'm not prone to wander. I mean, I tell you, now we sing that hymn and it has a different meaning for me. Or how about Keith Green? I don't want to fall. Remember Keith Green? For those of us that are old, you know, Keith Green, I don't, here's his, here's his song I don't want to fall away from you. Now here's what he wrote. After all the things that you've showed me, I'd be a fool to let them slip away. And doing things I know I shouldn't do. Well, I don't want to fall away from you, from you. Well, every day I pray to start anew. Cause you know, Lord, I don't want to fall away from you. No, Lord, I don't want to fall away from you. And, and, and here's, I think, Jesus' point. Be careful to not fall away from Jesus. Are you listening to me? Be careful not to fall away from Jesus. Take drastic measures to not fall away from Jesus. Someone asked me, what does that last line mean? We will all be salted with fire. Here's what I think that means. We'll all be judged. We'll all be judged. And so therefore, take drastic measures to not fall away. And that is the application of this message this morning. Take drastic measures not to fall away from Jesus. Now let's go back in our text just a little bit. Is Jesus literally advocating you chopping your hands and feet off or gouging your eye out? Is he literally asking? Is that what he wants us to do? You, you shake, some of you shake your hands and heads no. Why? Why do you say that? Hey, listen, if it's life or death or life or torment, why would cutting your hands and feet off or, or taking out your eyes, if, if that's what's causing you to fall away, why would he not be telling us to do that? Well, the reason he's not telling us to do, the answer is no, okay? If you said no, you're right. Um, but the answer is no, and the, and the answer is no, because Jesus told us just a couple of weeks ago, that's not the problem, right? It's not what comes into you. It's not your extremities. It's not your eyes or your feet, even though the eye is the gate to the inner man in some ways, right? It's not your eyes or your hands that's the problem. It's your heart. It's your heart that's the problem, right? And so that's why he's not literally saying, cut your hands and feet off and gouge out your eyes. But I think he's trying to make a metaphorical point. Man, take drastic measures that you don't fall away from Jesus if you've been his follower. So I want to suggest to you three drastic measures that I want to give you. Here's the first one. Take these words of Jesus seriously. Take these words seriously. Rehearse this exchange. Don't just say, wow, I prayed a prayer. I'm saved, man. I I got baptized one day. I'm saved, you know. No, that's not what saves us is is Jesus and following Jesus and, and being connected to Jesus. It's not that we pray to prayer someday. And so let me be transparent here. You know, whether you, th- whatever you think about whether a person can have a relationship with God and be born again and then lose that relationship with God or not lose it, all right? Whatever you think about, and you know, I've said this forever. Whatever you think, let me, let me be clear and unambiguous. People fall away. People who, they fall away. Over the Christians, I mean, over the centuries, Christians have fallen away and, um, and oh, yeah, I lost my train of thought here. So Christian over centuries to support the idea that you can, you can be saved and never lost again. As people fell away over the years, people began to say this. Well, they fell away because what? They were never saved to start with. Now, now listen carefully. I'm following me. I'm almost done. I don't have very much more. Just hang with me a little bit more. The problem with that is that those who fall away. They absolutely believe they're following Jesus. They absolutely believe they belong to him. And, and they would not know any otherwise, right? I tell you, Joshua Harris, that gas pastor, I mean, they, they believed they were saved, okay? And those of us that are watching them, we would absolutely say they belong to Jesus. We would say, hey, there's, they got the evidence. They got all the marks that they're following Jesus. So if a person can't tell themselves that, that they don't belong to Jesus, and you can't tell that they don't belong to Jesus, how can you say you're never going to fall away? How can you be absolutely sure? If people who think they're Christians fall away... We say, well, they never were to start with, but they thought they were. We thought they were. If that's the case, how can you be sure this morning that you will never fall away? I don't think you can. I don't think you can uh, be sure of that. And uh, so instead of saying like Peter, I can never fall away. I mean, I've, I can never fall away because it's a, it's, a, it's a definite thing. I, I'm in, and I can never fall. Instead of saying that, I think we should heed Jesus' words here and take drastic measures to not fall away. And those drastic measures, I think, believe, begin with understanding this truth. Be careful not to fall away. Be careful not to fall away. Here's number two. Here's my drastic measure number two. Choose to pursue and stay near to Jesus even when you don't feel like it or it costs you. Now, I, uh, I, I, want, I want to be really clear here. I don't want anyone this morning to leave this room without an assurance that you're saved, without an absolute assurance in your heart that you belong to Jesus, that Jesus is yours, okay? I don't want you to, I don't want you to have this doubt, well, am I saved or not? That's not what we're talking about here. You can have absolute assurance this morning that you belong to Jesus. But listen to what I'm about to say, because this is this is major assurance doesn't come because you prayed a prayer at some point in the past. Assurance of your relationship with Jesus comes because you are walking with Jesus. That's where assurance comes from. It never came from just you praying a prayer. It comes because you are following Jesus. Here's John in his his first letter. He says, and by this we know that we've come to know him. Here's how we have assurance, he said. We keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments... He is a liar and the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, the true, the, in him, truly the love of God has been perfected. Here's what John says. Listen, he's not saying that we're not going to sin anymore, but he's saying the person who's not seeking to follow after Jesus, he cannot have assurance. And this is why if you're stumbling in sin, you know, repent, repent. And give it, you know, trust the Holy Spirit. You know, use the disciplines of grace and, and, and repent and walk in faithfulness to God. Walk in faithfulness to God. Press into Jesus, everyone. Lean into him. Read your Bibles, you know, and I'm not saying read your Bible like, you know, just, just hey, I checked it all. I'm talking about read your Bible to stay connected to Jesus so you hear Jesus talk to you and, and you're learning from him. Stay connected to God's people even when you don't feel like it. And that brings me to my third and, and final um drastic measure here because these are dra- these are measures of the mind they're not measures they're not measures in the sense like cutting off your hands these are measures of the mind don't choose unbelief in your doubts uh, this is the same message from a couple of weeks ago if you're doubting take the drastic measures of pressing in and not choosing to fall away remember unbelief is an act of your will Remember when doubts crept into Thomas's life? Thomas didn't go, didn't leave. He, he hung in there, right? And I'm telling you what, God met Thomas and restored his faith. When doubts creep in on you, choose faith. Don't choose by your will. Unbelief. Don't choose unbelief. One last statement by Jesus, verse 50. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with each other. Salt is good because it preserves, but if salt doesn't preserve anymore, what good is it? Jesus is not good for anything. You know, if you lose your faith, you're not good for the kingdom anymore. You're not affecting the kingdom at all. So he's saying, hey, don't lose your salt. Don't don't, don't lose your salt. Have salt in your cells. He asked the question, how can salt become salty again? How can salt become salty again? Can it? I don't think it can, although salt, I, I, I you know, so we need to talk about this for just a second, because salt is a, is a chemical thing. Was it, uh, NACL or something like that, right? And it's going to stay salt all the way till it's not there anymore. But salt back then was these, these, it was combined with other stuff. And so after the, the NAC, I think is that, right? NACL. After that was gone, it was just a little stone, right? And so, how can you make it salty again? You can't. Um, so, how can salt become salty again? It can't. Listen, the book of the, the author of the book of Hebrews, I think, kind of addresses this. Do you remember this passage in Hebrews six? If you've tasted of the good things of the kingdom of God, if you've experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart and life, and then you fall away, do you know what the author of Hebrews says it is impossible to renew that person back again. I tell you, I've always struggled with that. Really? I mean, I've got people I love, Lord, that they, they fit Hebrews 6. They've tasted, they've they experienced, and now they've rejected you. They crucified to themselves, the author of Hebrews says, over they crucified Jesus to themselves over and over and over again. And, um, oh, my goodness, time is gone. Dadgummit, I should have looked. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I'm, to our guests, I, I tried to try to be faithful to the twelve o'clock hour. I am sorry. Anyway, uh, how, so I had this. I had this thought. Dude, I got to. I got to give you this. This is so good. How can salt be made salty again? It cannot. It's impossible for that person. I mean, the person that I love, who's who's now turned away from Jesus, who once said I was a committed follower of Jesus, but today I'm not. That person, I think it's impossible for him to find his way back, according to Hebrews. But not too long ago, the, the Lord spoke to my heart, and I want to tell you to encourage you. Remember Jesus, the disciples asked Jesus about, I think it was about marriage, I think it was the context, but Jesus' answer was this With man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Here's what I would say. I would say that means that with folks who have fallen away, it's impossible. They've hardened their heart. God's given them over to the hardness of their heart. I think it's impossible with them. But with God, with God, all things are possible. So keep on praying. Here's my conclusion. Let me just read it to you because I'm out of time. If you know somebody who's struggling with their faith, what can you do? Let me give you four things. Number one, don't condemn them. Don't make light of their struggles. Don't ridicule them for struggling. Take it really seriously. If you've got a friend that's struggling, I mean, know it's serious, okay? And and don't make light of it. Don't belittle it. Don't don't pull that card out. Oh, they may they prayed. They 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 belong to Jesus. They'll, God's never going to let them go. Man, don't do that. I mean, take it seriously. Number two, create a safe place for your friend to talk and share. Resist patronizing and easy answers. Encourage them not to choose unbelief when they're struggling. I got to tell you this at the at the Gideon Convention, I felt like the Lord wanted me to share that message on doubt that I did a few weeks ago, and it was the first message I preached. Jr., were you there for that one too? Uh, you know, I know Wendell was there, but I tell you what, as I preached to this room full of godly men and women, man, second guessed myself. Why am I preaching on doubt to the Gideons, right? Who are, who are here? And, uh, and I really did second guess myself. But after, but after that service, I had so many Gideons come to me and say, thank you for that, because I struggle with doubts. But I want to tell you, uh, Creating, but uh, this is about creating a safe place for a friend to talk and share. So Friday night, guys, I'm, I'm walking back to my room. There's nobody in the hall, so this guy, and you know, and I'm, I'm kind of a people person, and I stopped to talk to him. And he said, Hey, man, I want to thank you for that message this morning. And, uh, and then he begins to cry. And he said, You don't know, but I'm struggling so hard with my doubts about Jesus. And then he made this statement, I don't have anybody to talk to. He said, except you. And Meaning, that I guess, that he felt freedom to talk to me because of that message, right? And uh, so we have to be people that when our friends and brothers and sisters are struggling, that we're, we're the safe place for that person to share and without belittling them we can, and not giving them pat and easy answers, but helping them in their struggles. The third thing I said was with, I want to talk about with greater detail was help them understand the root of their faltering faith. And you said, man, how would I know? Man, I don't know. When a friend of mine was, was struggling recently, man, I didn't know what to say or whatever, but you can, you can be a sounding board. You can, you can ask questions. And if you don't know the answer, you can go. I remember when my friend talked to me, I remember I called a bunch of my pastor friends, and I said, hey, help me. Help me. What do I, what do, I do? How do I encourage my brother? And I asked them all to pray. And, and so you might not know, but you, you seek to find out. And the last thing I said was pray for them. And when my friend told me he was struggling, I was praying for him. And I got some other people lined up, and, I, and they were praying for my friend. So if you got someone who's struggling... Many gonna fall away. Hey, let's let's be there. Let's be there for them. And for all of us. Let All of us. Let's not fall away. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at Bacon's Castle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.